Hey, Broken Laces crew, this is Riley Smith, excited to bring another episode of the podcast to you. I'm going to do this one solo, no interview today, it's going to do a nice little solo through hike, and I wanted to share my uh, most adventurous, the longest hike I've ever done, the John Muir Trail, the 212 miler in the Sierras. The reason behind this idea, I want I want to do a two-parter. I want to do uh, a part one kind of on all the prep going into the hike, uh, the physical, the mental, the actual route logistics, resupplies, bailouts, um, understanding your, your river crossings, times of year, etc. And then part two, I wanted to bring you the my actual experience, how I did it, you know, favorite campgrounds, walk you through each day. And the, uh, the reason this, this came to fruition is I was actually on the Hike podcast, uh, another great outdoors podcast out there, and I was interviewed about the John Muir Trail, and it turned out to be her most listened to season, or most listened to episode of the season. I said, I gotta, I gotta go talk about it on my own podcast. It seems like this is obviously one of the more popular hikes in the world Ideally, because it runs from Yosemite to Mount Whitney, through the Sierras, through King and Sequoia Canyon, Inyo National Forest, Sierra National Forest, Devil's Post Pile National Monument. It is pure beauty. And for those who are trying to get into long distance hiking, it's it's a more accessible version, being only 212 miles, rather than going out to do the Pacific Coast Trail or AT, etc. So being that it's so beautiful, so accessible in, in one of the more popular states, uh, populated states in the United States, um, it's just a desirable hike and people want to hear about it. And so after being on that episode, I realized I got to come back and do a more in-depth version of that conversation. So excited to bring, uh, like I said, part one to you today. Uh, the next episode should be part two, All Things Go Well, where I actually dive into the hike. And so let's uh, let's hit the music and get to it. All right, guys. Uh, as I said in the intro, wanted to, to tackle the John Muir Trail and and kind of just start off with all the things that go into preparing for it and just actually understanding what it is and and whether you can do it, um, understand the mileage, the elevation, the remoteness, um, kind of give you a good background on the resources that you can f- utilize to, to make your trip easier. Talk about resupplies, permits, gear planning, the, the quintessential shakedown, if you will. And how you can physically start getting ready. So it's unlike any of the day hikes out there where you can kind of just say, hey, this is what I'm going to go do tomorrow. Get off the couch and do it. A lot of prep goes into it, I found out. And so I wanted to share that with you. So let's start with the John Muir, Muir Trail route. Like, what is it? Can you do it? The basic statistics are it's a 212-mile route. goes from Yosemite Valley at Happy Isles Trailhead, which is 4,000 feet in elevation up to Mount Whitney, which is at 14,505 feet, the highest point in the lower mainland 48 states. And that's a total of 212. And then once you're up at the top of Mount Whitney, you got to hike down Mount Whitney 
which is another 10 to 11 miles. So you end up at about 223 miles. Um, and it's a little bit more difficult than that because the elevation is up and down. Um, yes, you start at 4K. You get to 8K within a few first few days, and then you spend a majority of your time in between 8 and 10 for the next 100 miles. And then for the last... Last good chunk, about 80 of your miles, uh, you're spending at 10,000 plus feet, um, towards more towards the end of the hike. But just to give you an idea, you're going up and down through about 10 passes, um, ranging anywhere from eight to 14,000 for a majority of the time. In total, you'll do 47,000 feet in elevation up and 38,000 feet down. That difference in nine being from Yosemite Valley to then uh, Mount Whitney at the top. So at 223 miles, what does that kind of chunk out to depending on how fast you hike it? If you want to do it, say, in a week, that's 31 miles a day. Pretty aggressive. If you want to do it in a week and a half, 10 days, it's about 22 miles a day. If you want to do it in two weeks, that's about 15, 15 and a half miles a day. If you want to do it in about three weeks, you're down to about that 10 to 11 mile day stretch, right? And so you have to start to get comfortable and you have to know your mileage going in. Okay, this is as much as I can hike in a day. Let's just start with how many days I'm going to be out there because you got to know that number to start to do your physical planning, your gear planning, your food planning, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's that's the JMT route. That's the numbers uh, both from a mileage and an elevation perspective. A few other things I want to call out. Let's th- let's talk about remoteness. For the first little bit, you're you're running into day hikers. You're running uh, into roads. Um, you're in Yosemite, so a, a very popular national park. Uh, for the first you know twenty thirty miles, you're going to run into people who are just out there for the day. And the cool thing is, is you get a little bit of remoteness and then by about mile 60, you run into a very popular resupply point called Red's Meadow, which is in uh, Mammoth Lakes uh, next to Devil's uh, Post Pile National Monument. And so by mile 60, you've kind of run into another group of day hikers. And so for the first however many days, those first 60 miles, you're really running into a lot of people. Um but after that, you are in the backcountry, um, as it should be, and phone service is very fleeting. In fact, the, the only phone service I saw, and I was a Verizon carrier, was at the top of Donahue Pass, which is in, uh, exiting Yosemite, so you're, you're right in the beginning of your journey, and then on top of Mount Whitney, the end of the trip. Everything else uh, along the way, your cell phone doesn't work. Um, You may be able to go out to some resupply points or depending on your coverage, you might get some cell phone reception elsewhere, but you are remote. And I think that's really important to understand as well. Um, The other good thing to know when you're planning and understanding kind of your route and, you know, your days and how you're starting to map it out is understanding some of your bailouts. Um, you have to kind of mentally prepare for, you know, what happens um, if I need to leave the trail. And so understanding 
Obviously, your resupply points, are, which I'll talk about in a bit, are a key time for you to have that consideration. Hopefully, you don't get to that point, but people get injured. Um, somebody I hiked with, his family, uh, I believe it was his wife, got injured, um, and so she had to exit the trail. Um, and so understanding where those are and, and having that on your map is super helpful. A couple of trusted resources on that topic of, of bailouts, resupply points, river crossings. I wanted to share with you, uh, look up the names Elizabeth Wank, W-E-N-K. She publishes uh, GPS coordinates, annual creek crossings. So if it's a wet year or a drier year, she'll let you know. Um, and she has this cool, very small um piece of eight by 12 that you print out and cut into little small chunks that detail where your river crossings are going to be. Um, you'll want to monitor that beforehand. We'll talk a little bit about that later in terms of where the kind of nastiest river crossings are. And you want to time those uh, to where you're crossing in the morning. In the morning, they're slower. There's less water coming down rather than the afternoon when the, the sun is at its hottest and it's melted a lot of snow and water is coming down. So um, Elizabeth Wank publishes those, um, nice to put in your wallet and just kind of understand or mark on your map beforehand, uh, to understand kind of where the, I don't want to call them danger points are, but, but points you need to be on a high alert regarding when you're approaching them on the trail. Another good dude who does an annual survey, he's got a yearly planner, tons of resources from past year reports on completion rates. Um, connecting you to hikers. I know I just looked at the 2021 and there's a good spreadsheet of people who are already starting to interact and kind of sign up, if you will, on a Google sheet. His name's John Ladd. Find him online. Um, he's going to link you in. Both of these people are going to link you into a ton of tr tried and true resources. Um, I utilize a lot of their stuff, printed out a lot of the bailouts, uh, the resupplies, and the creek crossing. So a couple of good resources for you to consider as you're getting into. And then really find the Facebook groups. Um, there's a ladies of the JMT. If, you, if you're a lady who, who out there want to hike and, and even whether you're by yourself or another, you can connect with other folks hiking. Um, there's an annual group. So when I did it back in, let's see, that was 2017. Uh, there was just JMT hikers 2017 super helpful Facebook group because that was a wet snow year and watching and reading about the reports of people who were in June doing it. I hiked on August 1st. So June, they're encountering tons of snow at the passes. Start to think about how you're going to navigate that. Do I need to bring crampons? Do I need to bring snowshoes? And then in July, you start to hear reports that the snow is less, but the river's are, are heavier. And so now you're, you're starting to think about how I'm going to navigate those. So that Facebook group was really essential to kind of understanding the lay of the land in that year and gave me some of that more topical information with regards to the trail. I want to talk a little bit about resupplies. Uh, definitely one of the more common questions you're going to find. Tons of blogs online about it. I, I definitely want to call out barefoottheory.com. No promo there. If you go in there, it's going to break it down to all the mileage points, um, kind of give you a food planner as well. Uh, but in general, kind of the resupply points are at these points of, of the trail. So at 22.8 miles, Tuolumne Meadows, which is in Yosemite, 
um, is a spot where you can resupply. Resupply generally just means um, pick up extra food or ship boxes ahead uh, for you to resupply or, or kind of restash food and gear and consumables. And so Tuolumne Meadows has a general store. You could ship a box there, etc. Red's Meadow at mile 60, as I mentioned earlier, has a resupply. They also have a restaurant. Big kudos to planning in your food planner because guess what? You don't have to carry weight for the day you arrive to Red's. And some people will take a zero day there. Zero day is when you don't accomplish anything. Uh, zero miles. And you you know resupply on hamburgers and uh, pancakes and waffles, etc. And so Red's Meadow is a great spot for you to to camp, get dinner in, get breakfast in, and then head out the next day. VVR, Vermilion Valley Resort, is a mile 88. I didn't stop there. It requires a boat crossing. So you got to pre-book that boat, boat crossing in advance, or you got to hike four miles around the lake. From what I've heard, a lot of people who went enjoyed it a lot. I think the food was great. Um, another place where you can ship your box in advance. Some people said they got phone service there. So uh, another tidbit with VVR. Muir Trail Ranch at mile 110-ish is where I resupplied and what I'll talk to on in part two of my journey. Resupply day was one of the best days of the trail. Um, probably the biggest adrenaline rush I, I had. Um, when I arrived, there was, oh, I don't want to spoil the story, but there's there's people there with you resupplying and you have a bucket in, in a little stone uh, hut. Um, you, you give them your certificate, right? And, and you've booked it well in advance. I've paid. I've sent my resupply. It was not a box. It was a bucket, which I can talk about a little bit later. But you get your food, your, consum- your consumables, whether that be batteries or I'm trying to think what else beyond food. Uh, food, batteries, and toilet paper and other kind of... Um, consumables like that and it's just so much fun everybody's sharing food and and i didn't pack enough beef jerky so i'm stealing somebody's beef jerky and trading food and just having a really great time ended up spending about three hours there and then those all those that i've mentioned already are basically on the trail minus that four mile bow ride mirror trail ranch is just like a mile off the trail um there are other resupply points along the trail, but often hiking out eight to 10 miles. And so round trip, you know, 16 to 20. I mentioned all those resupplies and they were between mile of 22 and 110. And you still have 100 miles after that. And so you either have to hike that last 100 miles pretty efficiently, or a lot of people resupplied Onion Valley, which is a mile about 180 on the trail. But it does involve that eight miles on, eight miles off. Others um, at Onion Valley will have it um, horsed in, and so you can get resupplied and, and delivered um, to you at that juncture. And then once you finish Whitney, you get down to Whitney Portal, which is at the base um, of the Mount Whitney hike, uh, which is at 220 miles. There's a restaurant there. We'll talk more about that, but you're definitely getting a meal there. For those resupplies... You'll need to contact or, or go online, and, and like I said, plenty of good content on there about how and where to send your resupply, and whether you pay up front. I think a majority of them pay up front when you need to send it because they don't get mail every day. They get mail st- stored at a PO box, and they go pick it up, you know, 
every week, maybe every two weeks. So you have to send it well in advance so that it's stationed. There's specific rules on how what you need to ride on your bucket when you're arriving, et cetera. And so you'll definitely want to spend some time kind of going through some of that resupply uh, tactics, if you will, uh, online before you send that out. So let's talk about permits. You've decided you want to go. You feel like after you just heard all those numbers, hey, I'm going to hike. You know, this is going to take me 17 days. So I'm going to have to resupply twice. I'm going to do one at VVR and I'm going to do one at Onion Valley. Um, I know when I want to go. Um, and, and now how do I actually just get to go? Well, you got to apply for a permit. And if you're going southbound, which is from the northern terminus of Yosemite down to Mount Whitney, they call that SOBO, S-O-B-O, southbound, um, you'll apply through Yosemite National Park. And they allow you to apply for your permit 168 days in advance. And so to give you an example of what that means, if I want to go hiking on August 1st on the JMT from Yosemite, I can apply on February 14th. So you have to have this well-planned in advance. Um, takes about two to three business days to process. It gives you three choices. Um, we keep mentioning Happy Isles. That is the, the northern terminus. But there's plenty of entrance points in Yosemite. There's uh, the Sunrise Lakes trailhead um, through Tenaya Lake. That's where I started, which is about five miles uh, north of the, of the terminus. You can start at Tuolumne Meadows or where Lyle Canyon begins. Um, any of those places you can, you can put in your permit. So for example, my first choice is August 1st, Happy Isles. My second choice is, uh, the Sunrise Trailhead on August 1st. And my third choice is Happy Isles on August 2nd. So there's a bunch of parameters you can play at to, to kind of get, uh, your multiple choices for entrance and dates. Just to give you an idea, there's about 45 spots for the different variety of trailheads I just mentioned, and with only 10 walk-ups allowed per day at Lyle Canyon. So Yosemite allows effectively 55 people to enter the John Muir Trail and, and get over Donahue Pass, which is the exit point of Yosemite for the trail. I did southbound, so that's a little bit easier for me. If you're going northbound, which means you're starting at the the highest point in Mount Whitney and going north, so northbound, you'll file with uh, the Inyo National Forest for a permit. So you go into recreation.gov. You either can come in through the Cottonwood Lakes or the Cottonwood Pass. Uh, Both of those are about a 20-mile hike, Um, or you can start from... The Whitney Portal, although they're operating under a separate um, permitting agency. And so I'm actually not sure. I'll, I'll put in the notes whether you can come in from the Whitney Portal. The more the more common, more easy way is to come in through the Inyo National Forest, which, again, is about 20 miles away from Crabtree Meadows, which is on the John Muir Trail. So you got to do about 20 to get in. That will all be uphill and all at elevation. So you're kind of being really strenuous up front and then kind of working your way down towards Yosemite. So that's the permits. Um, In terms of selecting when to go, you obviously got to be pretty strategic. If you know it was a heavy snow year in the Sierras, August or late July is probably the earliest you want to go, so you don't have to deal with snow passes. If it's a little bit drier a year, I mean, there's if, if you're into snow hiking, people finish the JMT in May. 
it is possible. You just have to be a, a snow traveler and be really comfortable in the snow. But if it's a drier year, you could probably get away with end of June, start of July. And so you want to definitely pay attention to the conditions, understand what's happening in the Sierras and plan accordingly. Again, knowing how many days you think it will take, um, you will, on your permit, have an entrance date. That's the most important date. That's the date that is kind of legislated of when you can enter the trail. The exit date is uh, totally up to you. So I put 17 days knowing that I'd probably beat that. So you should probably put a couple extra days just to give you some wiggle room. Um, if you leave the trail early, you leave the trail early. There's no punishment for that. But you want to make sure that you have enough days on your permit to allow for your hike. All right. So that's your permit. You've now thought through kind of how you're thinking through it. Understanding your mileage, understanding your and applying for a permit, but also understanding elevation and the remoteness, et cetera. So let's let's talk about gear planning. Um, I'm going to do the quintessential shakedown. If you if you're on Instagram and you type in any sort of hiking pictures, people take photos with all the gear they're packing. Um, you know, they lay down and they kind of have the gear all cutely and nicely packed around you, and they call that the gear shakedown, and and it's kind of your final checklist to say i've got everything i need and that's all i'm gonna put on my back let's go this is a podcast so i can't i don't i can't really do that um so what i'm gonna do is just kind of walk you through my list and i'm happy by the way to share my planning documents they're definitely a little bit more rough a little bit less polished than what you can find in terms of the resources online but let me walk you down kind of the shakedown of my whole list I'll tell you what I brought, I'll tell you what I didn't bring, I'll tell you what I wish I brought, and I'll tell you what I actually sent home. At the Muir Trail Ranch Resupply, there is a a post office, if you will, and so I did send some gear home. All right, so obvious, uh, some some easy ones out of the gate, tent, um, I could have definitely ounce-shaved here. Um, It's one of those, I have a two-person tent, it's a light two-person tent. Um, There's people that I hiked with that had a tarp. Um, and, and you can definitely make do with smaller footprints, et cetera. Um, I wasn't going to upgrade every piece of gear I had for this trail. Um, so that was one that I bit and it was, it's an easy 10. I've used it a lot. It's light. Um, and I attached it to the, the backside of my pack. Um, for a tarp, I used this very thin plastic layer that I got from, I believe it was from. Uh, mountain laurel designs um super thin like as big as your wallet but just a nice little plastic footprint to put my tent down so i didn't have to deal with moisture on the tent in the morning uh sleeping bag i have like a 28 30 degree sleeping bag that was enough i slept in limited clothes so i didn't need any sort of like thermos etc it was plenty warm enough um had a sleeping pad i i chose to go inflatable um, I do have another kind of egg roll type of sleeping pad, but considering I was attaching the tent on the outside, I was going to go with the inflatable sleeping pad, a little bit more compact. I brought a stove, a little MSR pocket stove. Um, the other jet boils are really popular out there. Depends if you're going to go coffee, really. I was all my meals, my food planning was was boiling water and adding to either freeze-dried food or MRE packs. And so um, brought one pot and the pocket rocket. Um, was able to make do on one eight-ounce can of fuel. 
Um, there are definitely different better hacks and lighter hacks out there in terms of propane fuels, but I went with kind of what you can get at REI. Um, there is some good literature on how much fuel you need. You need about one, one eight ounce canister will get you 24 boils approximately. So I looked at how many boils I'll be doing, including coffee, breakfast, lunch, dinner, uh, for my food plan and made my purchase based off that. So I think the one eight ounce canister is all I needed. Little good tip that took a lot of research. So, so hopefully you like that one. Didn't bring any cups. Uh, had just my general all-purpose utensil. Had a headlamp, brought extra set of batteries. I believe I put the extra set of batteries in the bucket. I brought a water filter. The Sawyer Squeeze, very popular out there. You see a lot of smart water, bo- smart water bottles because that's what it's compatible with. I use a UV water filter that requires these four little kind of stumpy batteries. I think they're double Ds or... But the, it's like 120 seconds in a 32-ounce UV light, and you just light that up, and it kills like 99.9% of everything. So that's what I use, which means I had to deal with batteries, the only drawback of that. So you have to think through what kind of water filter you want to use. Um, I also brought a water bladder, uh, two liters uh, from my backpack. I brought an, a collapsible Nalgene to have on the outside um, that I could feel in case the bladder went out and I could kind of treat without having to empty my whole bag. That was just a choice I made. Brought your knife, um, first aid kit, general one you get from REI. You want to make sure you have all the right appropriate kind of pills to deal with the the various um, incidents that could come up, whether indigestion, stomach, uh, but general pain, ibuprofen, et cetera, plus all the bandages, gauze, medical gloves, so just the general kind of basic first aid kit. You're obviously not going to s- solve severe trauma out there, but you want to have uh, accessible medication uh, for some of those easy preventable ones. I had a bear can. Uh, your bear can's required. You are in the Sierras or black bears. I went with the Bear Vault 500. The Garcia's pretty comparable, uh, but the Bear Vault 500, just some stats on that. It's 80 bucks, about 41 ounces. I was able to fit eight. I want to say seven days of food in my bear can. It's about 700 cubic inches, about eight, nine inches tall, or sorry, nine, eight, nine inches in diameter, 12, 12.7 inches high. So that takes up the majority of my bag. My bag, I, I was able to get down to a 40 liter. I've spent all my life hiking with like a 65 and I go on the longest trail ever. And the point of downsizing and making weight, um, Weight efficiency choices um, means that I downsize my bag at a 40 liter bag. So the bear bear canister takes up a good chunk of the middle. Got your sleeping bag on the bottom, sleeping pad, pot, stove, some clothes, etc. And you're you're rocked out. You're you're topped out at 40. So yeah, bear can. We'll talk a little bit about bear can strategy in a bit. But I had the bear vault 500. Um, what else do we have? Bear spray is not allowed. Don't need to bring bear spray. Don't worry about it. Practice good bear prevention. The bear spray is not allowed by the national parks. Chose not to bring a pillow. I just use my rain fly, my rain, not my rain fly, my rain jacket. My rain jacket folds up into a nice pillow. Uh, brought a trowel or an entrenchment tool uh, for obvious reasons. A towel. Had a rain cover for my bag. Some emergency water tablets in case batteries failed. Lighter for the stove. Had a solar charger, one I borrowed from my buddy Jeremy, episode one, season one, plug right there. 
Um, see a lot of people out there with those um, charging cell phones. Uh, for cell phones, people use their maps. I used Guthook uh, JMT, cool little app on your phone um, that maps out where all the river crossings are, uh, where all the cool campgrounds are, where all the passes are. It's, it's quite the effective little planner. And so if you're either taking photos with your phone or using map or route planning with your phone, you need to charge it. And so you're basically on airplane mode and using the sun to charge it. I'm not a big trekking pole guy, but I brought one because of river crossings. So I brought one river, one trekking pole. I know, random. You see people with zero or two. I'm the guy with one. And then all your consumables. So quickly run through toilet paper, deodorant, toothpaste, floss, sunscreen. Sunscreen big for me. It was not bug season for me, which is great. Dish soap. I bring a little bit of Gorilla Tape for any gear repair. My map, I had a little Nat Geo map, but I also had the Gut Hook app, as I mentioned. And then any other personal consumables that you need. So chapstick is an example and sunglasses. I mean, that's a long list. It seems like you're bringing a lot. You end up making a lot of choices on, on, I need a smaller version of this. Or, you know, if you're hiking for 17 days, you might need to bring nail clippers. But guess what? You don't need to bring them on day one. You ship that stuff ahead. So... That's the long list. Some of that stuff was in smaller uh, amounts, and then you ship more of it later is the way to get around that. So that's my gear shakedown. I don't have a picture of my gear shakedown with me kind of laying all like an Instagram model on the carpet. I wish I did because it's it's a cool picture. I'm I'm making fun and in jest of of those folks, but I'm definitely doing it next time. Um, but that's the list I'll share with you. There's some gear considerations in there. Like I said, I had all this gear, and so you were sitting there thinking, what do I upgrade? And I actually have better pots and I have better stoves, but I wanted to go lighter. I knew I was boiling water, and that's about it. I can eat out of the pot. I don't need cups. So you'll make those choices. The one thing I haven't brought up about the gear shakedown is the clothes. The cool thing about your bear can, as I mentioned earlier, is it is empty volume. Once you start eating all your food, that bear can becomes your clothes hamper. And so you start stuffing that thing with either dirties or your clean clothes. So I brought two wicking shirts, rotated every other day. I brought shorts. No, I didn't bring shorts. I just brought a pair of pants. I'm pale skin, so I don't have to sunscreen my legs up. That's a plus. I brought three pairs of underpants, two wicking and one sleeping underpants. I didn't want to sweat in. I wanted some nice nighttime sleeping for the underwear there. I brought two, similarly for underpants, socks, two pairs of socks rotated every other day. They get sweaty. You put them on your backpack during your day hike. Let the sun dry them out. Get a little bit of the stench out. Some of that UV rays will get some of that stench out. Then I had one evening sock where I slept in and I didn't have to deal with, um, you know, sweaty, stinky socks if I chose that I needed socks for, for nighttime. I did bring gaiters. I shipped those gaiters home at the resupply because I had pants and I didn't need them. Um, but if you're wearing shorts, gaiters are probably a good idea. Uh, I had a rain jacket. Definitely going to need a rain jacket. You're in the Sierras. That afternoon storm is going to hit. You will need to make adult decisions and not hike through it or just wait it out. We'll get to that in part two. At one mid-layer, one long sleeve mid-layer, wear at night or sleep with. Didn't need any like thermos, long underwear or long tops. I was warm enough with just that. I have this sun hat, um, but it's basically like a bonnet. It's a bonnet on my head. 
Um, and it covers my neck, my head. I had the sunglasses I mentioned, of course, a pair of hiking shoes. And I brought a pair of water shoes, whether that be flip-flops or a light pair of, of shoes that you want to get wet. A lot of people just hike through rivers in their shoes. I'd recommend not going barefoot. But an extra pair of shoes, whether your camp shoes or some like Chacos, some like secure flip-flop. I think that was the gear list. I shipped home my gaiters. I shipped home... <sighs> I think I did bring shorts now that I think about it. I shipped those home. I wasn't wearing them, so it was just extra weight. In the end, I shipped home a full ready mailer that probably weighed like three, four pounds. That stuff adds up. All that being said, I had an opening pack weight because I was only packing six days of food to get to my resupply of about 34, 35 pounds. When I resupplied at mile 112 in Muir Trail Ranch, they have a little hook there. You get to weigh your pack. Beautiful. Um, It's going to be the heaviest your pack weighs. Uh, The heaviest it'll weigh is when you pack the most food. And I had my bear can chock full was seven days and the eighth day outside of the can that I was going to eat that night. I was about 38 and a half pounds. So I don't know. I, I don't know what my base weight was without food. I don't, it's one of those like why I get it. You, you want to know what your base weight is, but guess what? You're not going to hike with that base weight. So my weight with food and with that, with food at the beginning at the Muir Trail Ranch was in that 35 to 38 range. All right. Any key learnings on gear? Well, I've ne- I didn't, I didn't bring hand gloves. Didn't know that was a thing. My hands got sunburned. There's these, especially if you're using trekking poles, hand gloves can prevent some of that blister, blistering of the hands. If you're gripping too tight, it's going to prevent that sunburn. Um, I learned the hard way. We'll get into this in day, I believe, eight of my hike where I got mastered mad blisters. There's this thing called Luco tape. I think it's L E U K O. Luco tape is is a pharmaceutical tape, and you put it on your blister with some neosporin, and that stuff doesn't come off. You you sweat in it, you walk across rivers in it, and that tape provides that barrier between you and your shoe or sock and that friction, and it is glorious. You put some Luco tape on that blister, and you just you go from pain to crushing 15, 20 miles a day. So. Key learning, get some Luco tape, I promise you. And another thing I wish I'd have brought, I wish I'd have invested in a Garmin inReach. I didn't, I thought with my phone, you know, and 10 passes that I would get phone service, you know, reliably it passes. Nope. And so I actually borrowed somebody's Garmin inReach because my wife was meeting me at the end and I wanted to give her an up-to-date day that I was coming out because I ended up coming out early. And I wish I had that. And so, yeah, that's uh, some first aid ideas, some clothing ideas, the Garmin, um, the water filtration. I probably would go with the Sawyer Squeeze. I do love my UV filter. I think it's just cool. I think less weight, but the batteries and possibility of batteries shorting out is is a risk. And um, just being really prepared. Uh, you ha- you've done your gear shakedown. You know how f- how where, how far you're going to hike each day and just kind of know uh, and you need to have that all mapped out and so that's the important part of combining kind of your expectations of mileage you're able to accomplish with your gear and your food planning which we'll get into right now for food 
I came up with um, it, basically three options for each meal, and I charted it against a calendar. So I was planning on hiking 16 days. I just literally had breakfast one, lunch one, dinner one for day one. And then I would maybe for day four have that same breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And so you need to be able to map out what lunch one is. Is lunch one just, you know, trail mix, um, some energy chews, you know, some peanut butter and crackers or some hummus and pita. Like you got to map out what your lunch is and then add it up. My option one for breakfast was uh, like oatmeal, trail mix, and coffee. Uh, my option two for breakfast was a Cliff Bar and peanut butter on top of that Cliff Bar. So my option two was the fast meal. And so option two for breakfast, lunch, dinner was, hey, it's going to be a long day. I need something quick. And so you might want to map out your food compared to your mileage and if you know you're going to have a shorter mileage day, then splurge a little bit and boil something up or make something fresh. Or if you know you're about to hit a resupply, like don't buy lunch and save eating lunch for your resupply. And so you want to plan out your meals based off the mileage you're doing that day, when you're hitting resupplies. If I'm leaving Red's Meadow at lunch, maybe I get a to-go sandwich I don't have to cook and I can hike longer. And then I also charted, as I mentioned earlier, basically how many boils I was going to use in that given day. And that would help me determine my food canister or, or my fuel canister needed. So that's it. I think, you know, so so as it pertains to the, the bucket, I got a, a Home Depot, a bucket from Home Depot. The first six days I separated from the last seven to eight. The first six days I put in my bear can. And then I put the last six to seven that I mapped out in my, my plan in the bucket. And so that's that's what the bear can was. You, you follow the rules given to you by your resupply. You go to the post office. You're sitting there with a bucket taped shut. Some odd eyeballs looking at you. You pay the money. You ship it up there. And it's one of the most joyous things that will happen on your, on your hike is getting that bucket. All right, I've spent about 35 plus minutes. The last thing I want to talk about is the physical uh, prep. Um, I want to run through kind of what training I did. And it consists of a, a combination of core hikes, running, and some elevation training. So for about three months prior to my hike, um, this is kind of what my Monday through Sunday looked like. Monday, I do some legs cardio work. Whether you have weights or access to gym, just calf races, squats, um, any of that just uh, repetitive, you know, light, heavy rep, lightweight work. Um, Tuesday, I had a softball league. I counted that. Uh, Wednesday, I did arms, uh, shoulder back. And then Thursday, one of the f more fun days was was core. Um, so with cores, I did planks, Russian twists, supermans, kettlebells, windshield wiper, just to name a few. Google those. I'm not a fitness trainer. I'm not going to act like I can give you advice on that, but I knew I wanted to strengthen my core for this hike. And so I really emphasized doing those even on arms days. Sometimes I double up on core. Friday, um, if I would do running. And so even on legs days, if I didn't want to lift, I would want to run. I thought my biggest limitation was my cardiovascular. So I really wanted to get my lung capacity up. And so I wasn't stopping and starting a lot. I knew my legs were good. I knew generally in hiking that my shoulders would be good, my core would be good. I ran multiple times a week 
to make sure that my cardio would be good. And then on the weekend, I'd try to bang out some hikes. Um, I lived in the Bay Area at the time. You're at elevation zero. Preferably, you can get some elevation at hikes uh, or some hikes at elevation. But there was a hike in Pacifica, uh, which is very just south of San Francisco, that allowed me to get 1,500 feet, 1,500 feet of elevation in three miles. So really steep. Um, and there was times as we were getting closer that I would do it twice in one day. And so three miles up, three miles down, three miles up, three miles down. You're doing 3,000 vertical up, 3,000 down. That's maybe your third to fourth worst day on the trail. So if you can get to that limit of doing 1,500 up, uh, 1,500 down multiple times a day, you'll be fine. And so I literally laid this out. I said, this is what I'm going to do each day. Uh, did I hit every every time? No, I didn't do arms and legs every time. I, I really emphasized core and running if I didn't feel like I was doing that, but I was running at least twice a week. I was doing core at least once, and I was doing major elevation hikes let's see, about eight to nine weeks prior. And so starting with a light pack, 10 to 20 pounds, doing six to 10 miles, building that pounds up uh, to 20 to 30. And, you know, for the last three weekends uh, prior to my hike, doing 30 pound hikes uh, with significant elevation. And so it's just literally stepping up your training regimen for your hike to make sure you can do that elevation, that distance, and, and not have to start and stop a lot. And so you've got to build that into your training. You've picked your date, you've applied to your permit, you're doing gear research, you're buying a lot of food, you're upgrading gear, you're prepping your family and friends for this trip, you're taking time off at work. The last thing you want to do is show up to the trail and not feel physically capable of doing it. And so it's really important for... The last three things I covered, your physical prep, your gear prep, your food prep, to really just put that into a spreadsheet and start to outline it against mileage that you intend to do, the days you expect to be out there, and what you physically think you're capable of doing. And so after I did all that, I knew that I could do 12 to 15 mile days, and that meant that I could do this trail in 13 to 16 days. And that's what I'll cover in part two. Thanks, guys. I know it was a lot. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, and I'm excited to share it with you. Share your comments in the, in, the, in the thread. Just share it out and tweet at me, Facebook, whatever your media. Let me know what you have. Um, it's one of the more exciting things I've done in hiking and in the outdoors. So I hope it was enjoyable for you to listen to. And I can't wait to share part two where I walk you through the 13 days teaser, 13 days that I hiked the John Muir Trail. Thanks, guys.